Acts chapter 4, we are seeing a church in action. Last time in this book, we began chapter 4. We saw the response to the beggar, the crippled beggar, who has been healed. And in the beginnings here of chapter 4, we see that it is the religious crowd that is upset. That's often the case. Peter and John, to the power of God, heal this man. The multitude see it. He's walking and leaping and praising God, and they begin to press against this event at Solomon's porch, which could hold thousands. It's hard to wrap our minds around when we say temple, what the size of this thing is. But, and so they would, were pressing against this, uh, this scene to see what is taking place. And as Peter sees these people rushing over, he takes advantage of the opportunity and he begins to preach Christ. And he explains that it wasn't our power that did this. We, it is through faith in Christ. It is Christ's power and faith in His name that have made this man whole. And he calls on the crowd, repent, be converted, so that your sins may be blotted out. He touched on how Abraham, Moses, and all the prophets foretold of these days, and they spoke of Christ and how Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things. And chapter 3 ended with this, Unto you first God, having raised up His Son Jesus, sent Him to bless you in turning every one of you from His iniquities. Surely nobody's going to be mad at this message, right? I mean, what a great message. All you got to do is repent, be converted, your sins will be blotted out. Man, just look at the Scriptures, it'll verify what I'm telling you. He came to you to take you away from your iniquities. Whoop, they're about to have revival, right? Well, alas, we come to chapter 4, we find the Sadducees come rushing in. They forcefully interrupt their altar call, if you will. They're dealing with people. They're talking with them, it says. They rush in. They interrupt. They apprehend Peter and John. They were grieved. The Sadducees were grieved because they were teaching there's such a thing as a resurrection. Specifically that Jesus has resurrected. The Sadducees, remember, they controlled the temple. They didn't want any doctrine taught that might upset their doctrine that would affect their way of life. The temple was where the money was made. And if we, if we have this whole institution overturned and upended, we have now lost our way of life. And there's preachers like that today. They want to just make you feel good, pat you on the head and... And give you a little mint at the end of this. I don't know what they do. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's just move on. So anyway, they rush in. They stop this whole event. Remember that the Sadducees didn't want the Romans being involved. They, they did and they didn't. They, they wanted to be uh, pals with the Romans because the Romans would keep all, everything open. That would lead to the traffic coming to the temple from all, all the long distances. But they didn't want the Romans coming in and taking away their city and their sanctuary. That was one of the things we read about as we near the crucifixion of Christ. They were concerned about that. 
And so the Sadducees are, are really uh, nice to the Romans. And, and the Romans, they showed tolerance in a lot of areas. But they would not tolerate their government being protested. They were very tolerant when it came to certain things. They even let them have their own identity, their own religion. I think this might be in the sermon later. I don't know. I didn't have a chance to go over this. <laughs> so we'll just see where this goes. But they, um, they, they did not want their government protested against. In other words, they didn't want uprisings, revolts, you know, sedition. And so the Romans could come in. They could shut down everything if they wanted to. So the Sadducees, the priests, the captain of the temple, they, they're, they're mad at these two Christians. They're teaching and preaching that Jesus has resurrected from the dead. They rush in. They arrest these two men. And Peter and John spend the night in jail. But while they were bound, the Word of God is not. And so their silence, the Word of God could not be stopped. They had been halted, but God was bringing about a harvest. And we saw many more ended up believing on Christ. It says 5,000 was the number. Either this brought the total from 3,000 up to 5,000, or it was up from 3,000 to 8,000. Either way, this church would have been probably too big for some of you and you would have quit. This church is 5,120 or 8,120 strong. Talk about turning a city upside down. You know, God's not against large churches. We should not be either. What we see is God's blessing upon His church. I closed last time by highlighting how Peter and John, they didn't plan any of this. They didn't wake up this morning and say, you know, when we go to the hour of prayer, let's find that crippled beggar, let's heal him, let's get a thing stirred up, and let's preach the gospel. Yeah, you know, like a lot of us good Baptists do, we come up with ways to... Listen, they're just willing vessels. They're going where they're supposed to be, the hour of prayer, going to the house of God to pray. They're in the right place at the right time. They're just faithfully doing what God's called them to do. And this is what we see when we are vessels meet for the Master's use. Good things just happen, right? We, we, we just happen to be in the right place. No, God looks for those. His eyes are moving to and fro to show Himself strong. And so He's looking for those who are doing the right things that, that are right vessels. And this, what we see is what God can do through a church in action who will just continue steadfastly doing what God says to do all while standing in the face of persecution. Let's begin tonight, verses 5-7. through seven, We read this, And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? We see in verses 5-7, through after a night in jail, Peter and John are brought before the rulers, elders, scribes, high priests, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, members of the high priest family. 
who is this group? We know from verse 15, if you let your eyes glance there, it talks about the council. This is who made up the council in large part. The Greek word for council is a word that many of you are familiar with. It is the word that we get uh, Sanhedrin from. And so this is the Sanhedrin. You'll hear that a lot when you listen to other preachers or, or study certain books. And our King James Bible, it uses the term council because in the Greek it just means a council of people. And so it is the council, but you've likely heard Sanhedrin as well. And I just want you to know up front that anytime you hear council or Sanhedrin, they're one and the same. And so the Roman Empire, like I was saying earlier, they, they, they were brutal in many ways, but they were also very accommodating in some ways. And, and it led to an interesting governmental structure within uh, their different colonies and places that they had taken over. A lot of that they adapted from the Greeks. The, the Greeks had a way of doing things that was a little bit different as well. And the Romans kind of adopted that as they took over. And this made the council here in our Bible an interesting group politically in Judea. It's hard to know when the council was established. Many place their beginning sometime after the Babylonian captivity, but after the prophets had been silenced. That 400 year period from Malachi to John the Baptist when there was no voice. And many think that's when the Sanhedrin or the council was uh, started. Some think it was a little bit further down the road within that same period. I don't know how familiar you are with the history of Judea, but um, if you have your Catholic Bible tonight in the Apocrypha, uh, there is a book called the Maccabees. Okay, that went over really well. Uh, I know it's 71 in here, but we're going to get through it. Amen? And so um, the Maccabees... They had a revolt around 167 B.C. and and they rose up against the Greeks. And and in that revolt, they ended up gaining independence. You'll hear it in secular history called the Hasmonean Dynasty, which was from about 140 to about 37 uh, B.C. And and so they kind of had this, this short period of independence under this dynasty. And it ended when the Romans came in and they installed Herod the Great as king over Judea, which we see in the beginning of the Gospels. But what's interesting is, both the Greeks and the Romans allowed the Jews in Judea to have their own religious identity. And and they gave them certain governmental rights. It's very strange to me. I mean, if I took over somebody, you're doing what I tell you, shut up. But I guess they just had a way of, you know, finding some middle ground there. And and so they allowed the, the the... the council to remain. They gave them powers to an extent. They were a legal body. They were also a religious body. They acted as their version of the Supreme Court. It was the highest religious law in the land of Judea. All Jewish affairs that did not involve the Romans would go through the lesser Sanhedrin, and if it needed to be elevated, go to the greater Sanhedrin, which is what we're talking about here, the council. But what the Romans did do is they removed Judea's uh, right to capital punishment. They said, you can't put anybody to death. We're going to be the ones who do that. And that's why when they betrayed Jesus, they had to take him before Pilate, a Gentile governor, so that he could be the one to say, all right, let's put him to death. And so there, there were some limited powers, but for the most part, they had this kind of identity there. The council was made up of 71 members. That's the most common number. Uh, 70 people plus one. 
One being the high priest that year was kind of the president, the presiding officer over all of the council. It is said that it was patterned after the 70 elders uh, in the Old Testament, especially in the days of Moses. The 70 elders, and then Moses would be the head person, 71 people, and he would be the head over all of that. Some placed a number at 72. They divided up into three equal groups of 24. And so there would be 24 Sadducees, 24 scribes, which were mostly Pharisees, and then 24 elders, and all of these made up the council. Um, I mentioned last time that, am I boring you to death already? Okay, because I like this kind of stuff, all right? Um, I spent forever researching this. I'm throwing it out there real fast, but understand it took me hours. All right. So <laughs> I mentioned last time the Sadducees were those who placated to the Roman, Romans. They wanted to retain power. The Pharisees were the religious fanatics of the law. The elders were made up of those men who were highly respected in the community. The priests had ceased to be ordered after God's way. It was supposed to be hereditary. It was supposed to be something that you know, God had set up that way. But through corruption, bribery, of course money once it gets involved, it's the root of all evil. And it, it just kind of it, it ruined this, this priesthood. And now there was preferential treatment. That this priest would be installed. Maybe he would do something wrong and then they would, they would get somebody else in there. But it would usually be somebody who was connected to that family. That's why we read about the family members of the high priest here in our text. It would be somebody connected. And, and they would have a, now they would have a role. And often the old high priest would still be the puppet master behind the scenes. We see this in the gospel with Caiaphas and Annas. And, and so it was just a lot of corruption taking place. It's hard to imagine that politics could ever be corrupted, but it was. And the Pharisees, they, they may have been zealous keepers of the law, but it was the perverted oral traditions of men. They had ceased from God's law. The elders were so-called respected men, but they were just as corrupt as the chief priest and the scribes. It was all about money. And it's kind of like what we see today with Congress. It's amazing you can come out a multimillionaire because there's behind-the-scenes perks. And it was a very corrupted group in Jesus' day, just like some politicians in our day. They wanted Jesus destroyed, the council, the Supreme Court of the land. They wanted Jesus off the scenes. Now, Jesus knew all this beforehand, of course. Matthew 16, 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto His disciples how that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. That's the council. Judas Iscariot went to part of the council, members of the council. He went to the chief priest and he said, What will you give me if I betray Jesus into your hands? It was the council who was behind Jesus' arrest. Matthew 26, 3 and 4, Then assembled together the chief priest and the scribes and the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill Him. The council was the ones who provided the men and the authority to go and arrest Jesus. Matthew 26, 47. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from 
the chief priests and elders of the people. It was the council who conducted that sham of a trial that we read about in the Gospels against Jesus after He had been betrayed and arrested. Matthew 26, 59. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put Him to death. It was the council who turned Jesus over to Pilate in hopes of Him being put to death. In Mark 15, 1. And straightway in the morning the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council and bound Jesus and carried Him away and delivered Him to Pilate. It was members of the council who were the ones who moved the people to release Barabbas instead of Jesus. Matthew 27, 20. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. They were at ground zero. They were provoking the people in the response that they wanted to see. It was members of the council along with this mob that they were persuading who cried out, Crucify Him! John 19, verses 5 and 6, Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and officers saw Him, they cried out saying, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! It was the councils who mocked and reviled Jesus while He was on the cross. Matthew 27, verses 41 through 43. Likewise also the chief priests mocking Him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, Himself He cannot save. If He be the King of Israel, let Him now come down from the cross and we'll believe Him. He trusted in God, let Him deliver Him now if He will have Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. This is... The same council that Peter and John are now brought before. It's the same people. They asked them in verse 7, By what power or by what name have you done this? This was the same question, almost exactly, that this council asked Jesus during His ministry. Jesus had gone into the temple and He cleansed it. He said, you, look, this, this is my Father's house. It's to be a house of prayer. And you've made it a den of thieves. And He did what would get every pastor fired. He turned over the tables and He ran out the crooked people and He chased out the money changers. And He did so with a cord, by the way. And they asked Him this in Mark 11, 27 and 28. And they... Come again to Jerusalem as he was walking in the, they being Jesus and his disciples, uh, as they walk in the temple, there come to him the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And they say unto him, By what authority do you do these things? And who gave thee this authority to do these things? <laughs> I love how this morning we studied God didn't answer Cain's question, Jesus didn't answer their question. <laughs> uh, I love playing mind games. And so he asked them the question, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. And they ponder and they go, well, if we say this, he'll say that. If we say this, he'll say that. And so they said, we cannot tell. And Jesus answering saith unto them, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. <laughs> Boom. Now the reason I've taken so much time to try to explain the counsel their role in Jesus' betrayal, arrest, and death, 
is because that's who these two men are before right here. This, this is a group, listen, this is a group of some of the wealthiest men in Judea. This is the top. This is the supreme law in the land. This, this is, I mean, this is like the mayor's office here. I mean, I don't even know how to put it into words except to say this is the supreme court. And, and they're, they're standing before this group of men who are the most wealthy, the most influential, the most powerful men in the land of Judea, aside from the Romans. They're supposed to be the authority on everything religious. Matthew 2, verses 3 and 4, remember Herod had gotten word that Jesus had been born king of the Jews. And so to get an answer, it says, when Herod the king heard these things, talking about Jesus born king, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Where did Herod go for answers on religious matters? He went to the council. He said, I need to know where it is that the Scriptures say Jesus will be born. And so here, here's Peter, and he's standing before this elite group of people. And how is he going to respond? He's in front of the most well-educated scholars that Judea has to offer. I mean, this is the best of the best, if you will. This is the same Peter who cowered in fear just a couple of months earlier. And he denied Jesus three times as Jesus was in that trial. He denied that he even knew Him. Let's remember what Jesus told His followers. It's important that we understand the context of what's taking place here. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 16 and 17, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But be aware, but be aware of men. For they will deliver you up to the councils. They will scourge you in their synagogues. And in Mark's account, it says that they would be beaten. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said in Luke 21.12, But before all these, they shall lay their hands on you, persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into the prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for My name's sake. John 15.20, Jesus said, Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 16.2, They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he's doing God's service. So so you got to understand that based upon Jesus' own words, Peter and John here, they are in danger of being beaten, scourged, persecuted to some degree, locked away in prison, or even put to death. All based on how they're going to respond. Peter was scared before. And he responded with, I don't know him. Peter and John's life are at stake here. They know that if the council could do what they did to Jesus, they can do it to them. How would you respond? Well, let's look at how an uneducated Galilean fisherman 
answers the religious elites of his day. Would you watch as he responds to the council, verses 8 through 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. If you want proof of the resurrection, you don't have to look any further than this text. Just look at Peter's response. Uh, if, If you understand all that's taking place and you allow this to soak in, as Peter boldly stands before the very same men who arranged for Jesus' death. And just a little over two months ago, Peter himself was in denial. But now we see the power of the resurrection. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection being made conformable unto His death. And now having the the power of the knowledge of the resurrection of Jesus, he stands before the council and he preaches Christ and he says, Jesus is the reason that this crippled beggar has been made whole. And then he lays the blame at their feet for Jesus being crucified. And he preaches Christ's resurrection that at least a third of the council didn't believe in. He quotes the Scriptures. In verse 11, he said, This is the stone which was set at not of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. It is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. After giving a parable, Jesus would use that same passage in preaching against the members of the council. In Matthew 21, verses 42 through 46, Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priest, the Pharisees, heard this parable, they perceived that he spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. Peter is affirming here how the Scriptures speak of Jesus. And I have to believe that the council is putting all this together as Peter is saying these words. They're not ignorant men, okay? They know Scripture. They just don't understand how it applies to Christ. And they had corrupted a lot of it because of their observances that they adapted. But they've got to be putting this together that if they're, if they're not believing on Jesus, they're going to be ground to powder. And Peter here, he, I mean, he says it as plain as he can that this is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, and, and, and they've got to be connecting the dots and understanding that he's talking about Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Peter would later write in his first epistle, 
in verses in, in chapter two, verses seven and eight, unto you therefore which believe he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. And if there were any doubts in verses 9 through 11 of what Peter's driving home here, he definitely leaves no doubt in verse 12. Amen? Neither is there salvation in any other. That's pretty plain. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. This is exactly what the council should have known. They had the Scriptures. How sad is it that people have the Word of God and yet they, they just completely look at verses like Acts 4.12 and think, eh. God... Th- I love this because of who I am, and so maybe it's a little more personal for me, but I love how God brings along this fisherman, an unlearned man. He's not been educated in their synagogues. He's never going to fit in the Heartland crowd. He's never going to fit in in the West Coast crowd. He's never going to fit in with the the Fairhaven crowd, Brother Brock. They're never going to fit in with the Pensacola crowd. He's never going to fit in with the Crown crowd. Boy, you sound kind of bitter, preacher. I'm not. This, this is just an uneducated man who can't help but speak in, about the things that he's seen and heard. And, and God, he, he brings this Galilean down to Jerusalem to stand before these wealthy, intelligent, well-educated men who are men of influence and men of power. And He doesn't back down. He expounds the Word of God to them. And He lets the Sadducees know salvation must come through a resurrected one. Whoop! That's why they interrupted Him in the first place. He's preaching the resurrection. Remember it said it grieved them in their heart. And, and, and Peter here is saying, you've got to go through the resurrected Lord. He lets them know salvation won't come through pleasing some governmental powers like the Romans. He lets them know that salvation won't come through their wealth. He lets the scribes and the Pharisees know that salvation won't come through their keeping of the law. No amount of religious observance is going to save them. He lets the elders know no amount of respect that you may have in the community is going to make you good in God's eyes. Their social status could not save them. But as clear as can be stated, He lets this powerful group of religionists know that their salvation must come through Christ alone. Neither is there salvation in any other. And there's no other name whereby we must be saved. Notice that Peter said we, whereby we must be saved. This was not only true for the council, but it it includes Peter himself. And it's true for all mankind. There's no other way to be saved. Salvation cannot come through baptism. It, It cannot come through some charismatic, emotionally charged experience that we have at church. So tell me about when you knew Christ. Well, I was sitting in church and the preaching was really good and I got really emotional. 
And I went forward. Salvation doesn't come through church membership. It's not in works. It's not in money. But it's in Christ alone. 1 Corinthians 3.11 For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Matthew 1.21 And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. 1 John 5, 11 and 12, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. I don't know, maybe there's somebody here, you're looking for a way of salvation. Let this verse sink deep into your heart. Well, what, what about that verse that says, Repent and be baptized. Let this verse sink deep into your heart. What about the church that tells me, I've I've got to add works. Jesus is the only way. No man cometh unto the Father but by Him. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. How much clearer can God be than this verse? Now, what made the difference in Peter's life? (laughs) In Peter's preaching? The beginning of verse 8 says, Then Peter filled with the Holy Ghost. (laughs) What gave him boldness? The difference was Christ living in him through the Holy Ghost. Luke 12, 11, and 12, and when they, bring unto you, when they bring you unto the synagogues and unto the magistrates and powers, take you no thought how or what things ye shall answer or what ye shall say. For the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what ye ought to say. We're seeing a fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy right here. He said this day was coming. And we might have to revisit some of these verses because I, I kind of jammed a lot in here. But what is it that we can take away from this text tonight? There's a few things I want to leave you with and I'll just try to present them here in order of these verses. A church in action needs to stand boldly and with courage before the powers of this world. We're not to be intimidated by anybody. I didn't say be ugly. A church in action isn't held captive by any governmental powers upon this earth. I'm not against the church that made the decision to close. But we are not held bound by what the government tells us when it comes to the Word of God. You say, well, the day's going to come, they're going to shut you down. They might. Won't be the first time in history. It's already happening in other places of the world. But as long as we have breath and as long as we have freedom and as long as we have the ability, we ought to stand under knowing that it doesn't matter what the White House says. We have a biblical mandate from God. I think we need to get ready for those days. Anyway, I'm going to get off track. As a church in action, we need to recognize that all of our authority is from Christ. All of our power is in the Lord. 
In the Great Commission, Jesus said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. There's a reason we choose to be an autonomous local church. And I know maybe some of you don't quite understand all that yet. But there's a reason why there's not a church over us. We don't need ecclesiastical authority over us shoving down upon us what we are to preach and teach and be structured and all the rest. Why? Our power and our authority comes from Christ. Hey, He's the head of this local church. We derive our authority from Him. A church in action needs to be filled with the Holy Ghost. I'm sure we covered that in chapter 2. But without the Holy Ghost, we're powerless. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, and you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses. A church in action is doing good for others. Peter said, if we this day be examined of the good deed we've done. A church in action preaches Christ alone without apology. And a church in action makes the way of salvation through Christ crystal clear to all. May we be that kind of church. We need to forge ahead no matter the cost. Keeping our eyes on Christ, He is the prize that is before us. Understanding that this world is not our home, we're just passing through. And that we will stand before our King and we will give an account for the things that we've done, whether they be good or bad. Would you pray with me tonight?